I'm late. <gasps> I had to stop by the Wax Museum again and give the finger to FDR. We know Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri, is supporting the opposition in Syria. Are we supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria? Well, it's a proud day for America. And by God, we've kicked Vietnam Syndrome once and for all. Thank you very, very much. I say it, I say it again, you've been had. You've been took. You've been hoodwinked. These witnesses are trying to simply deny things that just about everybody else accepts as fact. He came, he saw, he died. Well, we ain't killing their army, but we killing them. We be on CNN like say our name, Ben, say it, say it three times. The meeting of the largest armies in the history of the world. Then there's going to be an invasion. You're quite hostile. I got a right to be hostile, man. My people been Alright you guys, you know what, it's been way too long since I did a Q&A show. I don't like doing these, I'm just talking to myself in a room. I'd rather do it live or have an interviewee to talk to, you know, but... You guys ask me questions, I'm gonna answer them. Alright, so... First question is, um, and it's hashtag Q&A on Twitter. I guess I can't get to that yet. I got to tell you, I'm Scott Horton. I'm the author of the book Fool's Aaron. That's right, the book, it came out. Also, the audio book is now finally done. Can you imagine that? We're living in the future now. It used to be in the past when you would say to me, you know, you should write a book. Or you would say to me, are you still writing that book? Or maybe, I donated some money toward you writing a book, and uh, and yet, uh, where is it? <laughs> I got at least one of those. Uh, no, the book's done. It's called Fool's Aaron. And everybody seems to like it. Uh, I guess. So far. Um, it's um, time to end the war in Afghanistan. That's what it's about. Uh, Fool'sAaron.us for that. I'm the editor of Antiwar.com. I'm the managing director of the Libertarian Institute. That's me and Sheldon Richmond and Jared LaBelle run the Libertarian Institute. we got a lot of great writers over there, uh, libertarianinstitute.org. And um, let's see, what else am I? I, know, I think that's all. Um, I tweet all day at Scott Horton Show if you're interested in that stuff. And uh, my right ear's ringing. Let's hope that's not... From for now on. All right, listen. Um, for now on, from now on, for from now on. Um, here's the deal. Uh, the first question at hashtag SHS for Scott Horton Show QA SHS QA uh, was what's the deal with Jesse Trinidu? Haven't heard from him in a long time. Well, uh, you might ask, who's Jesse Trinidu? Well, he's the guy whose uh, brother was murdered by federal officials in the summer of 1995, apparently because they thought he was Richard Guthrie, who apparently was John Doe number 2 in the Oklahoma City bombing. And 
So his brother Jesse, uh, Kenneth's brother Jesse, has been suing the government ever since, so say, 1998 or 99 or something, and getting all kinds of information. And where he's at right now, and it took me a while to even think of this, I was interviewed by Mance Raider and by uh, Dave Smith about Oklahoma recently, and I had totally forgotten about this uh, latest development where we last left the story with Jesse was he had an FBI witness ready to talk about uh, the PatCon operation. That was the code name for the FBI is uh, short for Patriot Conspiracy and their infiltration of the radical right. And he had a witness who was going to come forward and talk about, I forget exactly what now, you can go check the archives, uh, all on YouTube, announcing the YouTube project, youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. It's done, finally. Um, scotthorton.org or on YouTube you can find the archives where he talks about this and um, there was basically a witness tampering where somebody got to this guy and prevented him from coming to testify and the judge didn't like that so the judge appointed something called a special master to get to the bottom of that and so that's why Jesse hasn't been doing radio lately is because everybody's waiting to find out the results of that investigation. So uh, I promise you he's still at it and that I will bring you the latest on that as soon as it's available. All right, good. Um, all right. Uh, also, I want to tell you, nobody asked me, but I want to tell you that um, over there in the interviews section, I've got an interview with Jonathan Schwartz from... The Intercept, who I know from way back, and he was always really great on the details of the weapons of mass destruction lies. And we talked all about that for about uh, two hours. It's the 15th anniversary of the war. Figured a lot of you guys are young and need to know this stuff. And so we tried to do sort of a comprehensive who lied us into war and why. And um, I guess we could have focused a little bit more on the different lies of the INC and whatever, but... And did a pretty thorough job there. And then here's the thing that none of you have heard yet, uh, but is coming out real soon. And that is another two-hour treatment. In fact, two and a half hours. I mean, you can either like that or hate it. A two and a half hour interview of the great Gareth Porter about how Iraq War II played out. Two hours with uh, Jonathan Schwartz about how they lied us into war and why. Why and how. And then Gareth about what happened. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good stuff. I don't know. I hope you guys like it. I hadn't seen too much of people trying to tell this story around for the 15th anniversary. Everybody wants to forget. That's one of the most memorable parts of it to me was just how certain everybody was in their wrongnitude. All just so damn wrong. And yet so convinced they were right. This is amazing. Anyway, um, so if you're interested in the history of Iraq War II, uh, you'll like that, maybe. Dig it. All right. Um, ScottHorton.org slash interviews, and the Gareth one will be posted soon. Also, it's the third anniversary of the war in Yemen, and I did another interview. It's kind of redundant, but I think it's worthwhile, and the audio came out pretty good. There's a little bit of internet skipping out. But otherwise, the audio quality is really good. An interview of Nasser Arabi, this reporter based out of Sana, Yemen, all about the consequences of the war going on there. 
pretty important. I guess it's always the anniversary of an American war, you know. Um, and then, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take care of this now. That way I try not to elaborate too much because i got other stuff to get to. And I want to keep this short because I really don't like doing these. Uh, sorry. Uh, Star Wars. People keep asking me about Star Wars 8. Someone asked me the other day, man, you ought to do a thing about Star Wars 8. Well, I mean, the thing of it is I hate it. The wife, I mean, we both almost walked out at the Princess Leia part, man. Um, and that was the strongest part of the movie was the battle in space at the very beginning. Um, and then, God. Anyway, the bottom line of what was the worst thing about it was that they made Luke Skywalker a bum. And it's really all J.J. Abrams' fault because the story of Episode Seven made no sense at all. And he said, well... He didn't want the, the character of Luke Skywalker to overshadow the new characters. So, uh, in other words, it was some crappy decision he made. It wasn't part of the story, really, other than he just made it that way. And then anyway, so, um, you could have had all different kind of excuses, maybe, for why he was there. The dark side guys figured out how to turn his power against him and something, I don't know, anything but that. Anything but Luke Skywalker is now a worthless bum. While the fascists are taking over the galaxy. It was just stupid. It was a stupid idea for a story in the way that they made it. It was horrible. And then, you know, the whole Snoke thing was stupid anyway. So, I mean, who cared whether he lived or died? And then, the other main plot of the movie is a slow speed chase. Which actually makes no sense, because they even make sure to take pains to show you that there's like seven Star Destroyers chasing this one rebel ship. And they all have what, like 50 TIE Fighters each? But at some point, there's this throwaway line. Pull back the TIE Fighters. We can't cover you from here. Huh? What What does that mean? The, the Star Destroyers can't cover the TIE Fighters? Engaging at point-blank range with the enemy ship? And so, stop? Okay, so that's your line to explain why you have seven Star Destroyers worth of TIE Fighters and you're not using them to attack the ship, even though they were all very successful at the beginning, including even blowing up the hangar of the Rebel fighters inside the big ship so that they can't really defend it that way. But anyway, no, it says that in the script it has to be that way so that we can have a slow speed chase. And it's just like in the movie The Aviator, did you ever see that? Where... If you have airplanes in the sky uh, in your movie, but you don't have any clouds to compare their movement to, then they don't look like they're going very fast. And so that was this thing. It was like, they keep telling us that everybody's going at top speed, but it looks like they're just sitting there. It's just... I can't believe they made a whole movie out of that. And then the whole plot with the Korean girl, which I like Korean girls, you know, I'm not against Korean girls, and I'm not against Korean girls being in Star Wars movies, because there's no such thing as Koreans in Star Wars movies anyway. There's just humans and different kinds of aliens and whatever. I don't, what? I don't, know. I don't care about that. But then it was like, the point of her character was that she was Korean, even though there's no Korea in space, man. But like, this is, like, she should have had quota on her shirt that like, Someone decided in a political decision that it's time for there to be a Korean girl in a Star Wars story, even though it made no sense, and her entire story made no sense. The whole thing was completely stupid. Oh, God. And then, 
See, man, I'm done after this part. Laura Dern shouldn't even been in the movie at all. But then she's supposed to be an admiral. She's an admiral of any kind. And then, but she wears an evening gown and is Laura Dern. She's not like a tough, you know, Butch Dyke lesbian who you could believe would be like a, a ship's commander somehow. But she's Laura Dern. For God's sake. And two different times in that movie, including her, they say, Godspeed. Godspeed. I just want to burn Hollywood to the ground after that. Like, whoever all was involved in that, they should all be shot into the sun. How dare you put such a stupid, completely meaningless, and definitely meaningless a long time ago in a galaxy far away phrase like that in your stupid ass movie? How about good luck? Godspeed. Jesus. So, anyway, now Star Wars is just not special anymore. I mean, you know, I try to like the cartoons even and whatever, because it's Star Wars, man. I'm a serious-ass Star Wars kid from when I was a kid. But, yeah, it's pretty much good and thoroughly ruined now. I'm not going to see Han Solo. And I did like Rogue One, you know. Uh, it was good, but now I'm not going to see Han Solo, and I'm not going to see Episode Nine. We're over Star Wars in my family now. God, to think a movie, a Star Wars movie, could be so bad that makes you look back on episode two like, well, it had some redeeming qualities. Anyway, so, sorry, okay. Now I can talk about the Iran deal. Uh, Right-wingers always say, and libertarians even, they go, oh, the Iran deal is bad because Iran is bad and Iran bad and nuclear is scary and I don't know anything about it, but I'm worried about it. And even when they're not being liars, but they just are the lied to. And I've had a few conversations like this recently. One of them was yesterday on Twitter. A guy heard me on the Tom Woods show saying, "Yeah, the Iran deal covers everything. No worries. Inspectors crawling all over the place. And his argument, copied and pasted from Commentary Magazine, was military sites. The inspectors can't go to military sites. Yeah, but so what? The deal never said that they can go to any military site whenever they want to. That's crazy. That's obviously a deal that they would never accept. No nation in the world is going to accept that. What the deal says is that if the Americans have any actual reasonable suspicion, you know, like evidence or a reason to believe, an indication, I don't know the exact words, but it's up to them to decide, um... That there's actual reason to believe something's going on at any of those military sites. They absolutely do have the right to inspect once they present that evidence to the other members of the Security Council. Iran doesn't have to agree. America's allies have to agree. And the Russians and the Chinese, but still, they're in on the deal too. And if the Iranians are cheating, they're screwing them, so they don't want that. And so, in fact, they do have access to the military sites if they have a specific reason to go and look, which they don't. And the only real accusations were about a supposed bomb implosion containment facility, uh, practice facility at a military base called Parchin, and that's been disproved already. They already inspected it. Um, There were some other supposed tests at a site out in the desert where the Iranians asked them to come. Sorry, I'm, I'm spacing on the name. It was out in the western desert. And the Iranians invited them out. 
and they and the the Americans said, forget it. We don't even want to go out there and look. Because there was nothing to see. And they already knew it was some fake accusations anyway. And then that was it. And then so the argument at that point devolves straight to, well, there could be something somewhere. Which is just nonsense. Every bit of Iran's nuclear program is already known and accounted for and declared and safeguarded. There's no reason to believe in the world that they have some secret parallel nuclear program. And maybe they do, only in the sense that maybe anything is possible. But it can't be the burden on them to disprove a negative. As long as there's a mountain under a mountain in Iran under which something could be, if you pretend, then they can never disprove the reality of that in every case. But that's not how it works. And that's not how it needs to work. And especially when Iran's foreign policy is so obvious on this question that they don't want to make nuclear weapons. They haven't been making nuclear weapons this whole time. And you know, Trita Parsi has a brand new one out. I actually haven't read it yet. It's right here at Foreign Policy saying, well, if Trump ruins the deal, they probably will break out for nuclear weapons. So there are some right-wingers in Iran who probably would say, now we absolutely have to have them because these guys are going to attack us. And I'm not even sure I buy that. I think their policy might remain that, look, our hands are up. Germany, Britain, France, stop them. You can't let them attack us when you guys know we're still within the deal. I think that would be their best strategy, and I think that's their likely strategy, even if Trump does ruin the deal. But, you know, for everyone who says that the the deal is bad or they could cheat, what's behind that is just ignorance, right? Um, the deal is good. The deal included them pouring concrete into their Iraq heavy water reactor. It can never produce weapons-grade plutonium ever. It's done. It's ruined. They turned off two-thirds of their centrifuges at Natanz, and they completely shut down their centrifuge facility at Calm and turned it just into a research facility. <clears throat> They've permanently sworn off of nuclear weapons beyond what they already promised in the NPT, uh, which they've been under all this time. And they've increased their inspections. They've signed these additional protocols and subsidiary arrangements to their safeguards agreement, allowing the IAEA to inspect not just their nuclear facilities where actual nuclear material is introduced into machines, but even the centrifuge facilities and the mines and every stage and every part of their nuclear program is inspected. <coughs> so that's it. They're safeguarded. They're verified. They can't cheat because if they cheated, they'd be caught. Um, and it's only when Iran's nuclear program, in your imagination, is this vague, scary thing with the word nuclear stamped on it. That if you don't know the details, it sounds like it might be able to, you know, burn you to death. Like that scene in Terminator 2 or something, you know? But no, not really. It's a civilian nuclear program. It always has been. They've never enriched to weapons grade. They've, they've proven that they know how to enrich, which you could call that a latent nuclear deterrent in a way but pretty damn latent. Um, so, there you go. The Iran deal is awesome. So the only good thing that Barack Obama did, other than trying to open up Cuba a little bit there. But this was always a fake excuse. They never were making nukes. They always were under the NPT, and they already had a safeguards agreement with the IAEA. But what Obama did was he took this fake excuse for war completely off the table. He said, you know... 
we're not going to hear any more basically of of pretending that their tiny little measly low enriched uranium stockpile could one day be part of a breakout capability to make nuclear weapons because it's just not and they verified that now 10 ways to sunday so the argument's over that's what the deal did and the argument should have been over all along the argument was obvious from the very beginning it's just the bush administration are a bunch of liars and obama not much better <clears throat> so um yeah, I mean, when Obama said the alternative is war, well, what was he implying there? That without this deal, the Iranians were going to make nukes and then we would have to have a war with them? Or he was just saying, without this deal, then the Republicans are going to be able to lie us into war more easily, you know, in a couple of years. Which, actually, that probably would have been a more reasonable argument. A more factual one. All right. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh... John Bolton. I was interviewed by Tom Woods on uh, about John Bolton the other day, and I told the story about this guy, Bustani, who was the Brazilian who was the head of the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons and whatever. I always forget the initials. But, you know, the UN chemical weapons guys. And this was a guy who, you know, their problem was, as I was explaining to Tom, was that Saddam signed up for the deal and said, come on in and inspect for my weapons. Beyond and separate from UNSCOM and UNMOVIC and all of this stuff under, you know, the Americans and the UN. This is this separate agency. And he was saying, yeah, come on, Lynn, look around. I don't have any chemical weapons. I'm not making any chemical weapons. And the Bush administration had a huge problem with this because this was their excuse for war. So Saddam was making chemical weapons. He was going to give them to Osama bin Laden and he was going to use them to attack America. Something like this. And... Um, it didn't have to make sense. It just had to be scary enough for people who don't know anything about it to believe in, you know. And so John Bolton took point on getting this guy fired. And there's a brand new article today in The Intercept uh, where he has the first hand source. It's uh, um, uh, Mehdi Hassan in The Intercept. He has the first hand source from Bustani himself. Uh, and he has verified uh, a verification from at least one witness who said that tr- that John Bolton threatened the guy's kids. He said, we know where your kids live. We demand that you resign. And the guy says that he responded, my family knows the risk. And I'm going to do the right thing anyway, and so screw you, man. And they ended up forcing him out anyway. But John Bolton threatened the guy's kids, which I absolutely believe. <laughs> I mean... I don't see any reason why he would make that up, bring his kids into it in that way, if that wasn't true. And and the rest of the story about Bolton str- trying to strong arm him out of that position because he was going to ruin their chance to accuse Saddam of making chemical weapons uh, is bad enough. In fact, the threatening to kill his kids thing is almost nothing compared to what was really going on in uh, in getting so many people killed in the war itself. But kind of, you know, still, though, (laughs) that's just policy. That's different, Scott Horton. Okay, well, how about threatening to kill the guy's kids? Because, you know, when you're trying, when you're telling someone in international politics that they better resign from the commission that they're in charge of that's trying to prevent a war and you tell them we know where your kids live, that's explicit enough. 
Don't tell me John Bolton was threatening to take them out for ice cream. God's sake, man. Anyway, hey, they're the Republicans. That's how they do business. They kill people. I mean, and no partisans. I'm not I'm not cutting a break to the Democrats on this one. I'm just saying. All right. Uh and then I guess I'll just mention that I'm reading Dan Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, and I kind of put it down, but I need to pick it back up again. It's all about his time as a nuclear war planner. And I'm, of course, ahead of the curve on this. If you just search Daniel Ellsberg and my name and nuclear, you'll see that I interviewed him about four or five times about this years ago. Um, I've interviewed him about Vietnam and whistleblowing and this kind of thing. But I also interviewed him a, a whole series, four or five interviews, I think four, three or four interviews, yeah, four, um, about nuclear weapons and these articles that he'd written for Truth Dig back, oh, I don't know, five years ago now, something like that. But now he's got this book out and it's really just mind-blowing stuff. Um, these do-nothing nuclear missiles, as uh, Monty Burns calls them, they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, aren't they? But it just takes one H-bomb to kill your whole city. And we act like, yeah, it's just going to take care of itself. We act like, well, as long as the Russians have 7,000 and we have 7,000, then everybody's mutually deterred. After all, we made it through the Reagan years without dying. Um, but then again, you look at places where we have border disputes with the, with the Russians, like inside Syria or in the Southern Caucasus Mountains, or on Russia's own western border with the Baltics and Ukraine. I think that, yeah, maybe we should pay attention when people who have the experience and people who are not alarmists, uh, people who are both of those things, say that tensions with Russia are as bad now as any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So never mind when Carter and then Reagan canceled detente. This is as bad as any time since 1962. When we were on what they called the brink of nuclear war. Any closer to it and we would have all died. There is no closer. Daniel Ellsberg calls it omnicide. The ability to destroy the entire species. Can you imagine we let politicians and generals have weapons like this? And by we, I mean humanity. It's madness. Mutually assured destruction has worked so far, but then, yeah, up until the day when it quits working, and then what? When all of at least the northern half of humanity dies? And most of the south, too? Uh, eh, you know, might want to prioritize at least, you know, considering the importance of something like, you know, H-bombs and H-bomb policies. I saw, um, when, when the Americans bombed some Russians, the SDF or, I don't know, was it the SDF or the Americans that bombed those Russian contractors in Syria? And the Russian foreign ministry spokesman goes, yeah, well, you know, these things happen and those guys, they were contractors of some kind, completely deniable by my agency. So it's really too bad, but uh, yeah. And then I saw Americans, you know, these 
these uh, Hillaryites, basically, Hillbots, these uh, Russia conspiracy kooks, Molly McHugh is who it was, the wor- one of the worst of them, sort of like Louise Mensch, one of those, uh, saying, look at what bastards these Russians are, they, they don't even care about their own people when they die. When what this guy was doing was playing down a military conflict with the Americans. He was playing down the death of Russians. We ought to all be kissing his ass and shaking his hand and saying thank you very much for playing this cool. That's what we need for people to lose face and play it cool because... There's nothing more important than keeping relations between America and Russia cool. Now, who do these kooks think they are anyway? And seriously, how can they be so lost? They don't know that Russia has the GDP of Manhattan Island. They're not a threat to us. They're not a threat to Eastern Europe. All they're trying to do is hold a line. It's the USA that's picked this fight. Everybody knows that. Hell, you can read that even in foreign affairs and at foreign policy. Once in a while, shouldn't have expanded NATO like this. Maybe shouldn't have overthrown the government of Ukraine twice in 10 years. How about this? Shouldn't have backed Al-Qaeda in Syria for seven years. At least six Didn't have to be this way at all. You start pointing your fingers at the Clintons in the 1990s, Strobe Talbot and all these guys who now say we need to build up even more because of the consequences of their actions then. Of course, Bush expanded NATO further, Obama expanded it further, and even Trump has now brought in Montenegro. So anyway, a little bit of perspective for you. H-bombs go off. All your, you know, Democrat feminist friends are going to be going, see, I told you so, and then we're all going to die and burn in hell forever. And won't that be great? A bunch of idiots who picked this fight just because they couldn't, you know, reconcile the fact that Hillary lost because she's a detestable person. Come on. All right. Anyway. I mean, we probably won't die. I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm just saying it's kind of important. Dan Ellsberg's book is called The Doomsday Machine. And, you know, his bottom line, and he said this on the show, it's pretty obvious. It's nuclear winter. You have this many H-bombs going off and this many forest fires. What happens is all that soot gets up into the stratosphere far above the clouds where the rain can't clean the sky. And it's just going to stay up there. And it's going to destroy entire crop cycles planet-wide, and billions will starve. Billions of people will starve. And that could happen even if there was just a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan. For example. Between Israel and France. Uh, Pick two smaller ones, is what I'm saying. So anyway, check it out. Omnicide, The Doomsday Machine by our friend Daniel Ellsberg. I'm going to get this book knocked out. He endorsed my book. I owe him at least an interview, don't I? 
All right, good. So now we're at 32 minutes. We'll call that overtime. <clears throat> oh, my mouse is out of battery power. Okay, well, no outro music for you guys. Um, hire me to give a speech. Go look at my YouTube channel. I gave a couple of good ones about Afghanistan here recently. Uh, and I've got some coming up, too. I'm doing uh, Libertopia in San Diego. I'm doing the Michigan thingamajig. And I'm doing uh, Pork Fest and a few others. Just last weekend, I was in New Jersey at the Libertarian Party State Convention. That video will probably be up soon. And uh, I'll be happy to give a speech to your group about Fool's Aaron, the book, about Afghanistan, about the broader terror war, whatever you want. Uh, check me out, scott at scotthorton.org. And hey guys, if you want to support this show, the first thing you got to do is support my sponsors. And that is Mike Swanson, The War State. And also, that's a great book. Uh, and Mike Swanson, Wall Street Window, his great investment advice and uh, coverage of the market. All right. Then there's uh, Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc., where you can get your precious metals. And uh, Zencash which is a great new digital currency. It's also an encrypted messaging app and uh, document delivery system and all these things. You can find out all about it at zensystem.io, zensystem.io. Oh, did I mention for RRBI, uh, or for Roberts and Roberts, it's rrbi.co, uh, libertystickers.com. Uh, and we got a brand new site coming very soon, very, very soon. A brand new site for libertystickers.com. Um, and I got a brand new site at scotthorton.org. Check it out. It was made by Harley at expanddesigns.com. And if you go to expanddesigns.com slash Scott, you'll save 500 bucks. Pretty good deal, right? All right. Um, also, go to scotthorton.org slash donate. Uh, you can do monthly donations by PayPal. You can donate per interview with Patreon. You can do one-off donations. Um uh, 20 bucks will get you an audiobook. Actually, I'm going to be selling the audiobook from the site for 20 bucks. Anyway, uh, 50 bucks will get you a signed copy of Fool's Aaron. 100 bucks will get you a QR code, a silver commodity disc. And uh, any donation of $200 or more to the show will get you a lifetime subscription to Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. And uh, that includes my book, too. So uh, check out all of that at scotthorton.org slash donate. And then, uh, yeah. Follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. Thanks, you guys.